When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Law School of America, Brown and Its Consequences. In 1954, the contextualization of the Equal Protection Clause would change forever. The Supreme Court itself recognized the gravity of the Brown v. Board decision acknowledging that a split decision would be a threat to the role of the Supreme Court and even to the country. When Earl Warren became Chief Justice in 1953, Brown had already come before the court. While Vinson was still Chief Justice, there had been a preliminary vote on the case at a conference of all nine justices. At that time, the court had split, with a majority of the justices voting that school segregation did not violate the Equal Protection Clause. Warren, however, through persuasion and good-natured cajoling, he had been an extremely successful Republican politician before joining the court, was able to convince all eight associate justices to join his opinion declaring school segregation unconstitutional. In that opinion, Warren wrote, to separate from others of similar age and qualifications solely because of their race generates a feeling of inferiority as to their status in the community that may affect their hearts and minds in a way unlikely ever to be undone. We conclude that in the field of public education the doctrine of separate but equal has no place. Separate educational facilities are inherently unequal. Warren discouraged other justices, such as Robert H. Jackson, from publishing any concurring opinion, Jackson's draft, which emerged much later in 1988, included this statement, Constitutions are easier amended than social customs, and even the North never fully conformed its racial practices to its professions. The court set the case for re-argument on the question of how to implement the decision. In Brown II, decided in 1954, it was concluded that since the problems identified in the previous opinion were local, the solutions needed to be so as well. Thus the court devolved authority to local school boards and to the trial courts that had originally heard the cases. Brown was actually a consolidation of four different cases from four different states. The trial courts and localities were told to desegregate with all deliberate speed. Partly because of that enigmatic phrase, but mostly because of self-declared massive resistance in the South to the desegregation decision, integration did not begin in any significant way until the mid-1960s and then only to a small degree. In fact, much of the integration in the 1960s happened in response not to Brown but to the Civil Rights Act of 1964. The Supreme Court intervened a handful of times in the late 1950s and early 1960s, but its next major desegregation decision was not until Green v. School Board of New Kent County, 1968, in which Justice William J. Brennan, writing for a unanimous court, rejected a freedom-of-choice school plan as inadequate. This was a significant decision. Freedom of choice plans had been a quite common response to Brown. Under these plans, parents could choose to send their children to either a formerly white or a formerly black school. Whites almost never opted to attend black identified schools, however, and blacks rarely attended white identified schools. In response to Green, many southern districts replaced freedom of choice with geographically based schooling plans, because residential segregation was widespread, little integration was accomplished. In 1971, the court in Swan v. Charlotte Mecklenburg Board of Education approved busing as a remedy to segregation. Three years later, though, in the case of Milliken v. Bradley, 1974, 
It set aside a lower court order that had required the busing of students between districts, instead of merely within a district. Milliken basically ended the Supreme Court's major involvement in school desegregation, however, up through the 1990s many federal trial courts remained involved in school desegregation cases, many of which had begun in the 1950s and 1960s. The curtailment of busing in Milliken v. Bradley is one of several reasons that have been cited to explain why equalized educational opportunity in the United States has fallen short of completion. In the view of various liberal scholars, the election of Richard Nixon in 1968 meant that the executive branch was no longer behind the court's constitutional commitments. Also, the court itself decided in San Antonio Independent School District v. Rodriguez, 1973, that the Equal Protection Clause allows, but does not require, a state to provide equal educational funding to all students within the state. Moreover, the court's decision in Pierce v. Society of Sisters, 1925, allowed families to opt out of public schools, despite inequality in economic resources that made the option of private schools available to some and not to others, as Martha Minow has put it. American public school systems, especially in large metropolitan areas, to a large extent are still de facto segregated. Whether due to Brown, or due to congressional action, or due to societal change, the percentage of black students attending majority black school districts decreased somewhat until the early 1980s, at which point that percentage began to increase. By the late 1990s, the percentage of black students in mostly minority school districts had returned to about what it was in the late 1960s. In parents involved in community schools v. Seattle School District No. 1, 2007, the court held that, if a school system became racially imbalanced due to social factors other than governmental racism, then the state is not as free to integrate schools as if the state had been at fault for the racial imbalance. This is especially evident in the charter school system where parents of students can pick which schools their children attend based on the amenities provided by that school and the needs of the child. It seems that race is a factor in the choice of charter school. Application to the federal government. By its terms, the clause restrains only state governments. However, the Fifth Amendment's due process guarantee, beginning with Bowling v. Sharp, 1954, has been interpreted as imposing some of the same restrictions on the federal government, though the Fifth Amendment does not contain an equal protection clause, as does the Fourteenth Amendment which applies only to the states, the concepts of equal protection and due process are not mutually exclusive. In Lawrence v. Texas, 2003, the Supreme Court added, equality of treatment and the due process right to demand respect for conduct protected by the substantive guarantee of liberty are linked in important respects, and a decision on the latter point advances both interests some scholars have argued that the court's decision in bullying should have been reached on other grounds. For example, Michael W. McConnell has written that Congress never required that the schools of the District of Columbia be segregated. According to that rationale, the segregation of schools in Washington, D.C. was unauthorized and therefore legal. Tiered scrutiny. Despite the undoubted importance of Brown, much of modern equal protection jurisprudence originated in other cases, though not everyone agrees about which other cases. Many scholars assert that the opinion of Justice Harlan Stone in United States v. Caroline Products Company, 1938, contained a footnote that was a critical turning point for equal protection jurisprudence, but that assertion is disputed. Whatever its precise origins, 
The basic idea of the modern approach is that more judicial scrutiny is triggered by purported discrimination that involves fundamental rights, such as the right to procreation, and similarly more judicial scrutiny is also triggered if the purported victim of discrimination has been targeted because he or she belongs to a suspect classification, such as a single racial group. This modern doctrine was pioneered in Skinner v. Oklahoma, 1942, which involved depriving certain criminals of the fundamental right to procreate. When the law lays an unequal hand on those who have intrinsically committed the same quality of offense and sterilizes one and not the other, it has made as invidious a discrimination as if it had selected a particular race or nationality for oppressive treatment. Until 1976, the Supreme Court usually ended up dealing with discrimination by using one of two possible levels of scrutiny, what has come to be called strict scrutiny, when a suspect class or fundamental right is involved, or instead the more lenient rational basis review. Strict scrutiny means that a challenged statute must be narrowly tailored to serve a compelling government interest and must not have a less restrictive alternative. In contrast, rational basis scrutiny merely requires that a challenged statute be reasonably related to a legitimate government interest. However, in the 1976 case of Craig v. Boren, the court added another tier of scrutiny, called intermediate scrutiny, regarding gender discrimination. The court may have added other tiers too such as enhanced rational basis scrutiny, and exceedingly persuasive basis scrutiny. All of this is known as tiered scrutiny, and it has had many critics, including Justice Thurgood Marshall who argued for a spectrum of standards in reviewing discrimination, instead of discrete tiers. Justice John Paul Stevens argued for only one level of scrutiny, given that there is only one equal protection clause. The whole tiered strategy developed by the court is meant to reconcile the principle of equal protection with the reality that most laws necessarily discriminate in some way. Choosing the standard of scrutiny can determine the outcome of a case, and the strict scrutiny standard is often described as strict in theory and fatal in fact. In order to select the correct level of scrutiny, Justice Antonin Scalia urged the court to identify rights as fundamental or identify classes as suspect by analyzing what was understood when the Equal Protection Clause was adopted, instead of based upon more subjective factors. Discriminatory Intent and Disparate Impact Because inequalities can be caused either intentionally or unintentionally, the Supreme Court has decided that the Equal Protection Clause itself does not forbid governmental policies that unintentionally lead to racial disparities, though Congress may have some power under other clauses of the Constitution to address unintentional disparate impacts. This subject was addressed in the seminal case of Arlington Heights v. Metropolitan Housing Corporation, 1977. In that case, the plaintiff, a housing developer, sued a city in the suburbs of Chicago that had refused to rezone a plot of land on which the plaintiff intended to build low-income, racially integrated housing. On the face, there was no clear evidence of racially discriminatory intent on the part of Arlington Heights's planning commission. The result was racially disparate, however, since the refusal supposedly prevented mostly African Americans and Hispanics from moving in. Justice Lewis Powell, writing for the court, stated, Proof of racially discriminatory intent or purpose is required to show a violation of the Equal Protection Clause. Disparate impact merely has an evidentiary value, absent a stark pattern, impact is not determinative. The result in Arlington Heights was similar to that in Washington v. Davis, 1976, and has been defended on the basis that the Equal Protection Clause was not designed to guarantee equal outcomes, but rather equal opportunities. If a legislature wants to correct unintentional but racially disparate effects, it may be able to do so through further legislation.
It is possible for a discriminating state to hide its true intention, and one possible solution is for disparate impact to be considered as stronger evidence of discriminatory intent. This debate, though, is currently academic, since the Supreme Court has not changed its basic approaches outlined in Arlington Heights. For an example of how this rule limits the court's powers under the Equal Protection Clause, see McCleskey v. Kemp, 1987. In that case a black man was convicted of murdering a white police officer and sentenced to death in the state of Georgia. A study found that killers of whites were more likely to be sentenced to death than were killers of blacks. The court found that the defense had failed to prove that such data demonstrated the requisite discriminatory intent by the Georgia legislature and executive branch. The stop-and-frisk policy in New York allows officers to stop anyone who they feel looks suspicious. Data from police stops shows that even when controlling for variability, people who are black and those of Hispanic descent were stopped more frequently than white people, with these statistics dating back to the late 1990s. A term that has been created to describe the disproportionate number of police stops of black people is driving while black. This term is used to describe the stopping of innocent black people who are not committing any crime. In addition to concerns that a discriminating statute can hide its true intention, there have also been concerns that facially neutral evaluative and statistical devices that are permitted by decision-makers can be subject to racial bias and unfair appraisals of ability. As the Equal Protection Doctrine heavily relies on the ability of neutral evaluative tools to engage in neutral selection procedures, racial biases indirectly permitted under the doctrine can have grave ramifications and result in uneven conditions. These issues can be especially prominent in areas of public benefits, employment, and college admissions, etc. Now a word from our sponsor, the Law School of America. Voting Rights The Supreme Court ruled in Nixon v. Herndon, 1927, that the 14th Amendment prohibited denial of the vote based on race. The first modern application of the Equal Protection Clause to voting law came in Baker v. Carr, 1962 where the court ruled that the districts that sent representatives to the Tennessee state legislature were so malapportioned, with some legislators representing ten times the number of residents as others, that they violated the Equal Protection Clause. It may seem counterintuitive that the Equal Protection Clause should provide for equal voting rights, after all, it would seem to make the 15th Amendment and the 19th Amendment redundant. Indeed, it was on this argument, as well as on the legislative history of the 14th Amendment, that Justice John M. Harlan, the grandson of the earlier Justice Harlan, relied on his dissent from Reynolds. Harlan quoted the Congressional Debates of 1866 to show that the framers did not intend for the Equal Protection Clause to extend to voting rights, and in reference to the 15th and 19th Amendments, he said, If constitutional amendment were the only means by which all men and, later, women, could be guaranteed the right to vote at all, even for federal officers, how can it be that the far less obvious right to a particular kind of apportionment of state legislatures, can be conferred by judicial construction of the 14th Amendment? Harlan also relied on the fact that Section 2 of the 14th Amendment expressly recognizes the state's power to deny or in any way abridge the right of their inhabitants to vote for the members of the legislature. Section 2 of the 14th Amendment provides a specific federal response to such actions by a state, reduction of a state's representation in Congress. However, the Supreme Court has instead responded that voting is a fundamental right on the same plane as marriage, loving v. Virginia, for any discrimination in fundamental rights to be constitutional, the court requires the legislation to pass strict scrutiny. Under this theory, equal protection jurisprudence has been applied to voting rights. A recent use of equal protection doctrine came in Bush v. Gore, 2000. 
at issue was a controversial recount in Florida in the aftermath of the 2000 presidential election. There, the Supreme Court held that the different standards of counting ballots across Florida violated the Equal Protection Clause. The Supreme Court used four of its rulings from 1960s voting rights cases, one of which was Reynolds v. Sims, to support its ruling in Bush v. Gore. It was not this holding that proved especially controversial among commentators, and indeed, the proposition gained seven out of nine votes. Justices Souter and Breyer joined the majority of five, but only for the finding that there was an equal protection violation. Much more controversial was the remedy that the court chose, namely, the cessation of a statewide recount. Sex, disability, and sexual orientation. Originally, the 14th Amendment did not forbid sex discrimination to the same extent as other forms of discrimination. On the one hand, Section 2 of the amendment specifically discouraged states from interfering with the voting rights of males, which made the amendment anathema to many women when it was proposed in 1866. On the other hand, as feminists like Victoria Woodhull pointed out, the word person in the Equal Protection Clause was apparently chosen deliberately, instead of a masculine term that could have easily been used instead. In 1971, the U.S. Supreme Court decided Reed v. Reed, extending the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment to protect women from sex discrimination, in situations where there is no rational basis for the discrimination. That level of scrutiny was boosted to an intermediate level in Craig v. Boren, 1976. The Supreme Court has been disinclined to extend full suspect classification status, thus making a law that categorizes on that basis subject to greater judicial scrutiny, for groups other than racial minorities and religious groups. In City of Cleburne v. Cleburne Living Center Incorporated, 1985, the court refused to make the developmentally disabled a suspect class. Many commentators have noted, however, and Justice Thurgood Marshall so notes in his partial concurrence, that the court did appear to examine the City of Cleburne's denial of a permit to a group home for intellectually disabled people with a significantly higher degree of scrutiny than is typically associated with the rational basis test. The court's decision in Romer v. Evans, 1996, struck down a Colorado constitutional amendment aimed at denying homosexuals minority status, quota preferences, protected status or claim of discrimination. The court rejected as implausible the dissent's argument that the amendment would not deprive homosexuals of general protections provided to everyone else but rather would merely prevent special treatment of homosexuals. Much as in City of Cleburne, the Romer decision seemed to employ a markedly higher level of scrutiny than the nominally applied rational basis test. In Lawrence v. Texas, 2003, the court struck down a Texas statute prohibiting homosexual sodomy on substantive due process grounds. In Justice Sandra Day O'Connor's opinion concurring in the judgment, however, she argued that by prohibiting only homosexual sodomy, and not heterosexual sodomy as well, Texas's statute did not meet rational basis review under the Equal Protection Clause. Her opinion prominently cited City of Cleburne, and also relied in part on Romer. Notably, O'Connor's opinion did not claim to apply a higher level of scrutiny than mere rational basis, and the court has not extended suspect class status to sexual orientation. While the courts have applied rational basis scrutiny to classifications based on sexual orientation, it has been argued that discrimination based on sex should be interpreted to include discrimination based on sexual orientation, in which case intermediate scrutiny could apply to gay rights cases. Other scholars disagree arguing that homophobia is distinct from sexism, in a sociological sense, and so treating it as such would be an unacceptable judicial shortcut. In 2013, the court struck down part of the Federal Defense of Marriage Act, 
in United States v. Windsor. No state statute was in question, and therefore the Equal Protection Clause did not apply. The court did employ similar principles, however, in combination with federalism principles. The court did not purport to use any level of scrutiny more demanding than rational basis review, according to law professor Erwin Chemerinsky. The four dissenting justices argued that the authors of the statute were rational. In 2015, the Supreme Court held in a 5-4 decision that the fundamental right to marry is guaranteed to same-sex couples by both the Due Process Clause and the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment to the United States Constitution and required all states to issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples and to recognize same-sex marriages validly performed in other jurisdictions. Affirmative Action Affirmative action is the consideration of race, gender, or other factors, to benefit an underrepresented group or to address past injustices done to that group. Individuals who belong to the group are preferred over those who do not belong to the group, for example in educational admissions, hiring, promotions, awarding of contracts, and the like. Such action may be used as a tiebreaker if all other factors are inconclusive, or may be achieved through quotas, which allot a certain number of benefits to each group. During Reconstruction, Congress enacted race-conscious programs primarily to assist newly freed slaves who had personally been denied many advantages earlier in their lives. Such legislation was enacted by many of the same people who framed the Equal Protection Clause, though that clause did not apply to such federal legislation, and instead only applied to state legislation. Likewise, the Equal Protection Clause does not apply to private universities and other private businesses, which are free to practice affirmative action unless prohibited by federal statute or state law. Several important affirmative action cases to reach the Supreme Court have concerned government contractors, for instance, Adirond Constructors v. Peña, 1995, and City of Richmond v. J. Acros and Company, 1989. But the most famous cases have dealt with affirmative action as practiced by public universities, Regents of the University of California v. Bakke, 1978, and two companion cases decided by the Supreme Court in 2003, Grutter v. Bollinger and Grotz v. Bollinger. In Bakke, the court held that racial quotas are unconstitutional, but that educational institutions could legally use race as one of many factors to consider in their admissions process. In Grutter and Grotz, the court upheld both Bakke as a precedent in the admissions policy of the University of Michigan Law School. In dicta, however, Justice O'Connor, writing for the court, said she expected that in 25 years, racial preferences would no longer be necessary. In Grotz, the court invalidated Michigan's undergraduate admissions policy, on the grounds that unlike the law school's policy, which treated race as one of many factors in an admissions process that looked to the individual applicant, the undergraduate policy used a point system that was excessively mechanistic. In these affirmative action cases, the Supreme Court has employed, or has said it employed, strict scrutiny, since the affirmative action policies challenged by the plaintiffs are categorized by race. The policy in Grutter, and the Harvard College admissions policy praised by Justice Powell's opinion in Bakke, passed muster because the court deemed that they were narrowly tailored to achieve a compelling interest in diversity. On one side, critics have argued, including Justice Clarence Thomas in his dissent to Grutter, that the scrutiny the court has applied in some cases is much less searching than true strict scrutiny, and that the court has acted not as a principled legal institution but as a biased political one. On the other side, it is argued that the purpose of the Equal Protection Clause is to prevent the socio-political subordination of some groups by others, not to prevent classification, since this is so, 
non-invidious classifications, such as those used by affirmative action programs, should not be subjected to heightened scrutiny. The Law School of America The content used in the podcast is licensed by the Wikimedia Foundation Incorporated under a Creative Commons Attribution, Share Alike License. The text has been modified for audio. The content of these podcasts is for informational purposes only and do not constitute professional advice. These podcasts are not associated with the Wikimedia Foundation in any context. The Law School of America